If you've been following along, the Advent candles, you know I've been kind of making these up as I go along. There are a couple sort of traditional ways we do this, and I'm ignoring all of them. So up until today, you know, we did, first we did the, the hope candle, which, you know, that, that sounds kind of traditional. Then we did the sacrifice candle, which makes you sort of think, uh-oh. Then, if you recall, last week we did the forgiveness candle. And so this week, just to be different, I was going to go back to the traditional way of doing it. Because this pink, uh, this uh, sort of pinkish candle here, the, the last one of the four, is traditionally the candle of joy. Because it's right before the, the Christ candle, the white one, that we will light on Friday, on a Friday evening when we have our, our service. Um, but this isn't a joyful time in our church. And if you've been around, you know that. Uh, our brother, Kevin Cowan, died on Friday from COVID. He's gone to be with the Lord. Uh, we have others in the church who are still ill. Uh, praise God, none of them life-threatening. Um, but this is not a joyful time. And so I think perhaps we'll call this the candle of joy and sorrow. Because both are true for us this weekend. And really, in some terribly tragic way, some strangely, strangely normal way in life, um, that is exactly what is true. Life is a journey of joy and of sorrow. And Advent starts for us in church, it, it starts a clock ticking that you may or may not realize, but it begins in Advent and it ends Easter morning. So if you went to a more traditional church growing up, or you've ever been to a very liturgical church where they follow the church calendar, this is the season of Advent, and then obviously we will have Christmas. We'll have our Christmas Eve service, then there'll be Christmas, and then you are in what's known as Christmas Tide or the, the week after Christmas. That then will move into what we call ordinary time for a couple months until Lent. The ordinary time, January and February, that corresponds to Jesus' life until he's 30 and begins his public ministry. And we know almost nothing about his life then. We have one story of a couple paragraphs in the Gospel of Luke. We know almost nothing about Jesus from Christmas when he's born until he, he's 30 years old and he begins his public ministry. And then the Gospels, boy, they, we know lots about Jesus those last couple years of his life. We're in what, was called, what they would call ordinary time. Then we move into Lent when we prepare ourselves for Easter. We have Good Friday when we celebrate. That's not really the right word, but we acknowledge the death of Christ. And then Easter when we celebrate Christ, celebrate his resurrection. And then we move back into ordinary time. Really, there's a couple, there's Pentecost and a couple other things, but it's mostly ordinary time again until we get to Advent. And we do this every year. We do this clock every single year because this journey from the birth of Christ to the death of Christ to the resurrection of Christ, that's a journey every single follower of Jesus is on. Everyone sitting in this room, if you are a follower of Christ, you are in the ordinary time between birth and death. Our brother Kevin is a little further along that path now. He's passed from birth to death. And now he's in Saturday, 
Jesus is crucified Friday. He will be resurrected Sunday morning. And Saturday, he's in the grave. And that's where our brother Kevin is. That's where every follower of Christ from the beginning of time, from the first people who followed the Lord until now, they all wait. We all wait for the resurrection because we're all going there. We're all going from birth to death to life. And Kevin is a little further on that path than we are, but we're all headed there. So today, we will celebrate. We will be joyful. We will prepare ourselves to celebrate the birth of Jesus, knowing full well where it goes. Because it goes to his death. He is born in the shadow of the cross, we say. And then it goes to his life again. It goes to resurrection. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to celebrate that journey. We're going to celebrate the beginning of that, the birth of Christ. And we do it in a way, we do this service every year because I really enjoy it and it makes the musicians do a ton of work, which I feel is only fair because, you know, normally they come in, they do a couple songs. That's easy. I have to prepare a sermon every week. This time, they have to prepare tons of music and I just got to stand up here and ad-lib for a little bit. So... Our journey begins where all journeys begin, which is at the beginning. If you know the beginning of the story of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, God makes a perfect world, makes people, puts them in it. There's only one rule. Don't mess with that tree. If you eat from that tree, you will die. It's bad. Don't do that. And so, of course, what do we do? We eat from the tree. And then God comes back and there are consequences. There are consequences on Eve. Eve who was deceived and ate. There are worse consequences on Adam. There's consequences on the whole universe. Because Adam wasn't deceived. He just ate. He sinned willfully. That's why in scripture sin is always put on Adam's shoulders. Not Eve's. Eve was tricked and sinned. Adam sinned willfully. He knew better. And then... God curses the serpent, the snake. The, the, the evil one, Satan, has taken the, the guise of a snake. Here's what scripture says, what God says to the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike her heel. Now that's a really interesting paragraph because offspring is usually plural. I, I have three offspring. You know, I have three children. When he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, okay, those are both singular, that's you and a person, your offspring and her offspring, you expect him to talk about how the, the offspring of men, the offspring of the evil one, they're gonna fight at some point. But he says he, singular, one guy, he will crush your head, not your offspring's head. This isn't a fight sometime later between generations. This is a fight between one guy who's coming and the evil one. And God says, he will crush your head. You will strike his heel. And this starts a series of clues that make their way all the way through the scripture about this guy who's coming. 
And we, we learn more and more as time goes on. In the beginning, in the, the first books of Moses, you, you don't learn much. There's just this statement Moses makes that one day, Moses says, God will send you another prophet to lead you, another prophet like me to lead you. And that's all we hear about. But we get into David. Moses is around 1400 BC. We get into David around 1000 BC. And David writes all these Psalms. And again, he starts dropping these clues. This guy, this this prophet, this ruler, he's not just going to be the king, the ruler, but he's also going to be a new priest. He's not just going to rule Israel. He's going to be a priest who brings people back to God. Now, the, the rulers are from the tribe of Judah, and the priests are from the tribe of Levi. And you can't have two dads. You can't be from both those tribes. But somehow, this guy is going to unite those two roles. And so he begins to be called the Messiah. In Hebrew, that means the anointed one because both the king and the priests are anointed when they start their jobs. They're the only people in Israel, we crown a king, we put a crown on his head. In their world, they pour oil on his head. We, we have a, you know, some sort of service of consecration to invest a pastor. In their world, when a man became a priest, they anointed him. It's the only two roles in, he, in, in Israel where you get anointed. And so this guy who's coming begins to be called the anointed one because he's going to unite these two roles where people are anointed. And then we get into the prophets. And wow, they start dropping clues like crazy. And no one drops more than Isaiah. All throughout Isaiah, I mean hundreds of times, Isaiah says something about this guy who's going to come. I'm just going to read you just one of them from early in his book. This is the beginning of Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, and their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will never harm or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A, a, a root from Jesse. Do you remember Jesse from the story of Ruth? Jesse's the son of Obed, who's the son of Boaz. Jesse is the father of King David. Now, Isaiah's writing 250 years after the death of David. But somebody's going to come out of David's line. This new king, this king who's going to rule with righteousness and justice. When Isaiah writes this, the biggest, baddest power in the known world is the Assyrian Empire. And I can assure you, justice and righteousness are not even on their radar. That is not how they rule. And did you hear that last paragraph? The result of this king's rule is going to be peace. Peace throughout the whole earth. Peace not just between nations, but, but even between nature and man. Peace will be the outcome. And again, when Isaiah writes this in the 700s, Israel hasn't known peace for 200 years since the death of Solomon. 
And this is just one of those clues that Isaiah drops. And Jeremiah drops them, and Zechariah drops them, and Malachi drops them. All throughout the prophets, over hundreds of years, there are these clues that someone's coming. Something's going to happen. But all they can do is wait. They wait, and they wait, and they wait. So we're going to join them. The first thing we're going to do is join them in their waiting. We're going to sing together, Come, Thou Long-Expected Jesus as we enter in to the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that history and people waited. So stand with me, if you will, and let's sing.
have a seat. The last book in our Old Testament is the book of Malachi, and it's actually also the last book chronologically in the Old Testament. We think it's written sometimes in the 300s BC. We're not exactly sure. There aren't like, you know, this person was ruling or those kind of things to date it. But the language, the subjects, the things that go on, sometime in the 300 BC. And it also has one of these clues. The very last sentence in the prophet Malachi's prophecy says that God is going to send the great prophet Elijah back to his people to prepare them. And if they will not be prepared, it will not go well. And that's it. That's the end. That's not just the end of what we call the Old Testament. That's the end of prophecy. No other prophet arises. God does not speak to his people for the next 300 plus years. It's called the 300 years of silence. No prophets, no visitations, no nothing. Now, please understand, God is still at work in his people. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't stop acting on their behalf. If you're watching this or you're here and you're Jewish or you have Jewish friends, then you know they just celebrated Hanukkah. That is a celebration of God delivering his people Israel from the second century BC. So about 100, 200 years after Malachi, God is still taking care of his people. But he's not talking to them. No prophets, no visitations, nothing, just silence. Until we get to about 3 BC. Again, we're not exactly sure of the date, but somewhere, 2, 3, 4, somewhere in there. When all of a sudden... God starts talking again. When an angel, Gabriel, they haven't seen this for hundreds of years. An angel, Gabriel, shows up in the temple while a priest named Zechariah is there doing the candles and the ministrations and all those things. And Gabriel tells Zechariah, who's in his 50s, he's getting ready to retire. He's childless. He and his wife, Elizabeth, have never had children. And the angel tells him, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him John, and he's going to be Elijah. Like, that's the prophecy from Malachi. (laughs) He's going to be Elijah. He's going to prepare the people. Because the angel says, the guy is coming. The guy that people have been waiting for all throughout the hundreds, even thousands of years of what we call the Old Testament. He's coming. It's time. And then we're told this in the book of Luke. So Elizabeth, the wife of Zechariah, she does get pregnant. And Luke writes, in the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found great favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Jesus means salvation in Hebrew. You are to call him salvation. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How can this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the most high will overshadow you. So the holy one to be born will be called the son of God. 
Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the guy. I mean, did you hear it? Joseph is from the line of David. God is going to give him the throne of his father, David. He's going to reign over Jacob's descendant. Israel hasn't had a king since five, the 570s BC, 570 some odd years ago, when the Babylonians overthrew Jerusalem, destroyed it, took everybody into captivity. They've not ruled themselves except for about a 10-year period, and they've never had a king in the last almost 600 years. But this is the guy. He's coming. And lots of women in these scriptures are told about their children. Sarah is told, Abraham's wife, she's going to have a son, told to name him Isaac. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is told she's going to have twins. And just like they're fighting in her womb, they're going to fight in real life. Samson's mother is told by an angel exactly how to raise him. He can never drink wine. You can't cut his hair. Lots of people in scripture are told about their children. But for all of them, they're told about their children. A husband and a wife, a child who is conceived. Sarah is told, you will have a child. You and Abraham, it will be your child. Mary is told that she is going to have a child who's not from her and her husband. He's from God. You know, I've told you in this world, your name is your first name, and then son of and your father's name. Son of in their language is Ben. So I would be Jeff, Ben, Tom. My sons would be Nicholas, Ben, Jeff, Christian, Ben, Jeff. My daughter would be Christina, a bot, daughter of Jeff. This isn't going to be Jesus, Ben, Joseph. The angel says two things. He's going to be Jesus, Ben, Shaddai, son of the most high. And he's going to be Jesus, Ben, Yahweh. He's going to be Jesus, son of God himself. All throughout all those hints, we've always assumed it was going to be a man. It was going to be, it's a guy. There's a guy coming. Oh yeah, he's a guy. But he is so, so much more. He is not just a Ben-Adam, a son of man, Adam in Hebrew. It means, it's both the name Adam and it also means man, mankind. He calls himself that all the time. Jesus refers to himself constantly as Ben-Adam, the son of man. But he's not just going to be Ben-Adam. He's also going to be Ben-Yahweh. He's going to be the son of God. So we are going to enter into the wonder of that together. This time we're not going to sing. We're going to listen. And we're going to think. And let me encourage you to pray. <laughs> to, to enter in to what Mary is told, that there's going to be a son of Mary, a son of humanity, a son of Eve, a descendant of our first parents, who is also God himself. This is the guy, and he's coming now. So listen, contemplate, think, pray, prepare yourselves 
because he's coming. Right. 
So, you would expect, nine months later, for Mary to give birth there in Nazareth, the town that she and Joseph live in. It's way up in the north, the land of Galilee, the northern part of Israel. She would give birth there in her hometown with her parents, her mother, her aunts, with other people around them. And yet, that is not what happens. We're picking up Luke's story in chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census which took place while Quinarius was governor of Syria. And so everyone went back to their own town to register. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee down to Judah, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because Joseph belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to a firstborn, her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. I've told you before, I'm always astounded when I read this story because this is the guy. This is the guy we've been waiting for since the dawn of time, since Genesis chapter three. I mean, if you have a Bible, look in Luke and move all the way back to Genesis. There's a lot of ground to cover in there. We have been waiting for a thousand plus pages in our story for this guy. One sentence. The birth of the man that all of history has been moving towards takes one sentence. This is what Luke writes. It happened while they were there that the days of her pregnancy were fulfilled and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him up and she laid him in a food trough because there was no place for them in the guest room. It's one sentence. There's no fanfare. There's no trumpets. There's no announcement. There's no entourage. Heck, there's not even any other human beings. There's no family. She gives birth alone in a strange city with just her husband. Nothing else. This is the Messiah, the man who will rule Israel. Again, they haven't had a king in almost 600 years, and the king is here. He's gonna be the priest that brings God and man back together again, the anointed one. This is the guy. 
And his whole birth gets one single sentence. It passes completely unnoticed in the town of Bethlehem, which is a little town in the country of Judea, which is a tiny little country in the province of Palestine, which is a minor province in the Roman Empire. Jesus is born in his world, quite literally, in the middle of nowhere. When we lived in Mali, which is a country in Africa, Timbuktu is a real city, and it's in Mali. We used to say, Timbuktu is not the edge of the world, but you can definitely see it from there. The Marines who served at the base on Mali, they had their standard Marine t-shirt, Marine Embassy Guard, because it is hugely, hugely a big deal to be an embassy guard. Like, you have to be the best of the best to guard the embassies. And so they have a special uniform, a special shirt they wear that says, you know, Marine Guard such and such and so and so detachment serving the embassies in this thing. Only on theirs, on the back of their shirt, it said, serving at the cutting edge of nowhere. That's where Jesus is born, the guy, the Messiah, the king, the priest, the person that all of history for thousands of years has been coming together, is born on the cutting edge of nowhere with no one there. And it will be at least a year, if not more, before anyone shows up and the scripture says that they worship him. This is the son of man and the son of God. And his birth passes completely unnoticed. We are going to rectify that this morning. We are going to notice it. So stand with me. We're going to sing one of my favorite Christmas carol mashups. It is, O Come All Ye Faithful. And then at the end, we will turn and sing, We Adore You. We will both acknowledge that Jesus is here in Bethlehem and... We will adore him. We will worship him. No one did that when he was born, but we will rectify that and do it ourselves now. So stand and let's sing.
I said there were no trumpets or fanfare at Jesus' birth, and that is true. But there was an announcement. There was a pretty big announcement. It just wasn't made where you would expect or to whom you would expect. There was no announcement to the leaders of the country or the leaders of the Roman Empire. There was no announcement made to the religious scholars, the people who should know that the guy is coming. It was announced to shepherds. Luke continues his story. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks that night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone back into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they have been told. Announcing a birth to shepherds is weird. When my oldest son, Nicholas, was born, my firstborn son was born. He was born in Baylor Medical Center in downtown Dallas. I did not run out into the streets and announce it to the homeless guys in the, in the, the, you know, the alleys around. But that's kind of what God did. Like shepherds, you know, they're not highly thought of in this culture. They have no power. They have no prestige. Heck, they're not even people people that other folks are going to listen to. I mean, it says they go around telling everyone. They were, people were amazed. Well, they may have been half amazed because it's these shepherds. They should be out in the field with sheep. That's their job. What are they doing in town now? This is not who you would expect. And we don't know why. God does not tell us why he announced this first. The first people to be told about the birth of the guy, the Messiah, the king and the priest. The first people to be told are a bunch of shepherds. But we do know that Bethlehem's a few miles south of the city of Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem is the temple. The temple's still standing at this point in time. The Romans will destroy it in 70 AD. But as I said, we're still kind of in, we're much earlier than that. We're in around 3 BC. Every day in the temple, you have to sacrifice several sheep. It's the law. But the temple's in literally downtown Jerusalem. There's no place for sheep there. So we're told by other sources. It's not in the Bible. It's other historians of the day and other stories of the time that the sheep for the temple sacrifices were kept in Bethlehem because it was a fairly small town, had lots of pasture land, was very close to Jerusalem, that shepherds kept the sheep and every day they would send the requisite amount to the temple. And maybe, again, we don't know, but maybe God is announcing to the men 
who've been caring for his sheep for generations, that the sheep is here. They have been caring for the lambs of God, the lambs who will be sacrificed for the people's sin every day. Maybe God is announcing to them that the lamb is here, the lamb who will be sacrificed for everyone's sin once. That's it. Never again. One time only. Every day at the temple, you had to sacrifice sheep. But when the Lamb of God is sacrificed, there will never need to be another one. As a friend of mine jokes, maybe God was just warning them that they were going to need to get a new occupation in a little while. Maybe God's telling them what's going to happen. These guys are, if you will uh, pardon me saying it, they're really the first members of DCC. Because they are being disciples who make disciples. They hear what God says and they obey it. And they tell other people about it. And people are amazed. They return glorifying and praising God. They are disciples who are making disciples. And we want to emulate them. So we're going to put ourselves in their shoes. We're going to sing a Christmas hymn. I'm sure you know it. Angels, we have heard on high. We, us, the shepherds, the people who had no right being announced to, the people who had no glory, no majesty, no reason God would come to us and tell us that the Messiah has been born, except that he's kind and he's generous and he wants everyone to know. So stand with me. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of the shepherd and sing angels we have heard on high.
shepherds got an angelic announcement. It would be hard to miss a host of angels, glory of the Lord, all those things. It turned out there were other signs in the sky that could be seen in other places as well if you were looking for them. To our knowledge, no one in Israel saw them. At least it's not recorded if they did. But some other men did see them. Some scholars in Persia, modern-day Iran, They saw the signs in the heavens, and they knew what it meant. And like the shepherds, they didn't just see it and hear it. They did something. They acted. Just like the shepherds said, hey, let's go, these scholars said, let's go. Only for them, it was not a few hours' walk into Bethlehem. It was months and months of journey from modern-day Iran up to modern-day Turkey and then back down again into Judea. Matthew tells us the story in chapter two of his gospel. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report it to me, so that I may go too and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. These are the first people 
in scripture who are recorded as worshiping Jesus. It's at least a year after his birth, and they're not Jews. The Messiah is the ruler of the Jewish people. He's going to restore the country of Israel. He's the priest who will bring the Jews and their God, Jehovah, back into fellowship together. He's the Jewish Messiah. They're not Jewish, they're Persian. And yet they come and they worship him. The first people ever recorded to do that. And there have been hints of this throughout the scriptures as well. God says to Abraham, this is about 2000 BC. God says to Abraham that he's gonna have all these descendants, that they will become a people and they will be God's people and they'll possess the land. And God says, I will make them a light to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are people who are not Jews. They don't trace their descent back through Abraham. That's probably most of us. God says to Abraham, your people will be a light to the whole world. Isaiah, who I told you, is probably the one who drops the most clues about this guy who's coming. At one point, God will say, speaking about his servant, about this guy, he'll say, it's too small a thing that you merely redeem Israel. I will make you a light to the Gentiles. So my salvation goes out to all the ends of the earth. This, this guy, this Messiah, he's not just here for the Jews. He's not here just to save God's people Israel. That's what Jesus means. His name means salvation. He's here to save everybody. Everybody who's willing, he will offer to save. We've seen hints of it throughout the scripture. And now we see it beginning to be fulfilled. Persians, non-Jews, they have come and they are worshiping him. Just as I said, we want to be like the shepherds. We want to be people who obey when God says to move, we move. We want to be people who tell others about it. So at least they hear about it. What they do with it, we can't control that. It doesn't appear that many did much about it, what the shepherds told them. We also want to be like these kings, these magi, these scholars who saw that God was at work and they wanted to be part of it. So they went to where God was working. That's one of the things we pray all the time when we get together each morning as a staff and pray. We pray, Lord, we don't want you to come and bless our plans. We want to come be part of your plans. Where are you at work? Where do you want to do good? Where do you want to work within this church? That's where we want to be. We want to be like these kings. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of the Magi. Stand with me and let's sing We Three Kings.
accounts of Jesus' life that we have been reading from have all been from the Gospels of Luke and the Gospels of Matthew. They, they both talk extensively about the birth of Jesus. But we actually have four Gospels, Matthew and Luke, but also Mark and John. John, which is the shortest of the Gospels, he doesn't tell us anything about Jesus' birth. He just starts when Jesus is about 30 years old and he enters into public ministry. He doesn't deal at all with what happened before. John... John's a little different. John's more like a poet than a historian. Mark, Matthew, Luke, they all tell the story of Jesus like a historian would. It's chronological. It's sequential. It starts at the beginning. It goes to the middle. It ends at the end. Everything is laid out. They tell the story in a way that is very familiar to us. John tells it a lot more like Isaiah would like those prophets of old would. He, he bounces around in time in Jesus' life. He, you know, rather than just sort of move through events, he'll spin on one for a while and, and talk about it and come back to it. And he tells the story so differently. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it seems like in some cases they're copying each other because one of them will say something in exactly the same words that the other one said. Wow, John is just different. Let me read you John's introduction to his book about Jesus, where he comes from, how it happened. John says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing that has been made was made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to those which were his own. But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who would receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, 
nor a human decision or a husband's will, but children born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. That's the beginning of John's gospel. Here's the end. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I told you I'm always surprised that the birth of Jesus is so brief. I mean, Luke is the long version. Matthew says, quote, Mary gave birth to a son and they named him Jesus, end quote. That's the entire story of Jesus' birth in Matthew. And I think perhaps John gives us some clues as to why the gospel writers don't really tell us much about Jesus being born. Because the point of the gospels isn't to know more things. The point of these stories isn't to know the story. The point is not information. The point is transformation. That's what the writers want to do. They spend almost no time on the birth of Christ. They spend a lot of time on people's responses to the birth of Christ. The shepherd's responses, the magi's response, Herod's response. How did people respond to Jesus? Because that is the question. That's the single most important question you will ever ask of yourself your whole life. How do I respond to this? Because remember, we are all of us. Every single human being is on this journey from birth to death to resurrection. Because the scripture says everyone will be resurrected. All of mankind. God will resurrect everyone. And then he will separate them on the basis of how you responded to Jesus. Those who want to be with him and came to him through Christ, they will go into eternal life with him. And those who don't, those who said, no, thank you, not interested, then they will get what they asked for. They will go away from God. They will go to eternal destruction. They will be where God is not and nothing of God is. And that all comes down to what John says. How do you respond? He was in the world. The world didn't receive him, but some did. And to those who did, then they could become children of God. Those who did, they had life in his name. And that is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born, when these books were written. Life is found only in Jesus' name. The single most important question in all of life you have to ask yourself is, how do I respond to Jesus? Do I do what John says? Do I believe that he was the Messiah, the Son of God? Do I come to him and ask him for life? Because if you do, he will gladly grant it. Gladly. Or do I not? Do I say, no, thank you. Nope, not interested. Just a story. Don't, don't, don't bother me. I got places to go. I got people to see. You are free to choose. Completely free. But your choice will matter. Because we are all on a journey, birth, death, resurrection. And at resurrection, then you will give an account. And you can either plead your own life and go off, 
or you complete Jesus' life and stay with him. It is absolutely your choice. God will never force you. For all of us who have made that, who have come to God and said, yes, please, please, I need life in your son. Then we are gonna sing this next song together. And for all of you who haven't, wow, listen. We're gonna sing a Christmas carol you may not know. We actually do it here every year, but it's one of our own. It was written by our own Jordan Young. It's called Hear the Bells, and it celebrates the birth of Christ. Because if you live near a church that has a bell tower, on Christmas morning, you will hear bells. Bells ringing out to celebrate exactly what the shepherds were told, what the magi knew, what was announced to Mary, that the Savior of the world has entered, or as one of my favorite not-so-Christmassy Christmas hymns says, like a stone on the surface of a still river, driving ripples on forever, redemption rips through the surface of time in the cry of a tiny babe. So stand with me, and let's celebrate. Let's sing Hear the Bells. Hear the bells for the kingdom come, the ringing victory for Christendom, for Christ who brings all the wanderers home, there's hope for us, hear the bells. Lay it down, the burdens weigh, lay it down. Your sin and shame, just lay it down And call His name, your salvation has arrived Hear the bells for the kingdom come The ringing victory for Christendom For Christ who brings all the wanderers home There's hope for us, hear the bells Falling away. Look now, you are no longer insane. Your wounds have been healed, you are his, your seal, your salvation has arrived. Oh, Jesus has arrived. Hear the bell. There is hope for us in Jesus Christ. That is what we celebrate. When we gather again on Christmas Eve, we will celebrate that. I hope you celebrate it in your families Christmas morning as we move on this journey through the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. Jesus, who is called firstborn among the dead, but oh, not the last. Definitely 
not the last. That is yours for the taking. All that the song talked about is yours for the taking if you want it. You just have to ask him for life. He will gladly give it to you. So let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that, that you had life in you, as John says, and you extend it to us. You offer it freely. We only have to ask you for it. And you now are everywhere and you hear everything. You hear us. You hear every single person on this planet and anyone who comes to you, you will receive. Thank you. Lord, we are grateful and we know, we know the truth of what the scripture says. We didn't love you and now you are responding to us. You loved us and we are responding to you. Thank you. We are so, so grateful. I pray for all of us who have said yes to you that this Christmas will be joy. That, that even in the midst of sorrow, even in our losses this year, remembering that you have come, that there is hope for us, that those bells ring to remind us that our salvation has arrived. I pray for all of us that that morning would be a joy. And I pray for anyone who has not come to you for life. And I ask you to be gracious to them and grant them life. Open their eyes, open their hearts, move in them that, that they want what you freely offer, what you were born into the world for. Thank you. We are so, so grateful. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. We pray everything in your name because you are the guy. You are the Messiah. You are the son of man and you are the son of God. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Now, as always, Dunwoody Community Church, you are sent. I hope we will see you back on Christmas Eve.